Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, I will be speaking with four guests, Debbie Sims, Susie Rule, David Cash, and Bill Coleman, about their involvement in a project called Mount Gromore, which will transform a 35-foot high pile of construction debris, once known as Mount Trashmore in Bridgeport, Connecticut, into an agricultural wellness and learning campus. Before starting, I'd like to better introduce our guests on the show today. Debbie Sims is a community leader who works for the East End Neighborhood Revitalization Zone, or NRZ for short, and has championed prior community wellness projects. Debbie founded the East End NRZ Market and Cafe, which addresses food insecurity locally by providing fresh produce to the community. Our second guest is Susie Rule, the Director of Policy at Elevate Policy Lab at Yale Child Study Center within the School of Medicine which works with impacted communities and government in the U.S. to advance family mental health, disrupt poverty, and foster environmental justice. Susie previously served as senior counsel for the U.S. EPA Office of Environmental Justice and co-founded Brownfields to Health Fields, or B2H, a community-driven approach to transform contaminated properties into community spaces that meet essential needs. Our third guest is David Cash, the Regional Administrator for EPA Region 1, who has spent his career in public service harnessing science and policy to solve challenges at the intersection of environment, economy, and equity. Prior to joining EPA, Dr. Cash spent a decade working for the state of Massachusetts on their environmental and energy policy and served as the Dean of the John W. McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Lastly, we are joined by Bill Coleman, the Deputy Director of Planning and Economic Development for Bridgeport, who, along with Mayor Joe Gannam, offered support for the project at the level of local government. Throughout the episode, our guests will talk about the work that they do and their involvement in the Mount Gromore project. They will also discuss the importance of community-led solutions to environmental injustices and effective collaboration across all sectors of government. Lastly, they will provide recommendations to other communities seeking to lead similar projects. Debbie, Susie, David, and Bill, thank you all for being here today. Thank you for having us today. We are really excited. Thank you, Georgia and ELI, for providing us with the opportunity to share our amazing Mount Gromore success story. So let's start by giving listeners some historical background on this project. I want to hear more about the long-standing 30-year history of Mount Trashmore, as well as the environmental health and economic challenges that East End has faced over the generations. When I think about the Mount Gromore project, I always think about the early Sunday morning community gatherings. We'd walk from East End Baptist Church to Mount Gromore every Sunday morning to this huge trash pile that was smelling and erupting and doing all kinds of crazy things in our community, really trying to seek help, trying to find out how do we intercede to get someone to come down here and help us take care of this Mount Trashmore project. My children were small at time. The mayor used to walk with us at that time. We even had Jesse Jackson come down and walk with the group. 
to mostly community people and folks who've joined us from other parts of the state who participated in the march along with us every Sunday morning. The march became the place to be on Sundays. Not only did you get to see your neighbors and friends, but we all felt like we were participating in a cause that at the time we didn't see any hope for, but eventually we were able to get them out, trash more site down. Thank you, Debbie. I think one of the things that's remarkable about the story that Debbie has recounted and has lived is the length of time involved and the persistence that characterized that work. Every Sunday for a lot of Sundays, Debbie could tell you how many Sundays, and every Sunday without any visible change. There's an expression I was taught as an English major in school. There was time and repetition. Ah, the wonder of it the dropping water and the solid stone, how utterly it yields at last. And I'm reminded of that when I think of the length of time and the persistence that was involved in that community effort. And a lot of it was not seen. The walk from East End Baptist to the Mount Gromor site, it was only a few blocks. And I think there was, Debbie, and you can correct me, there was a, a more publicized March, effectively, they went all the way to the state capitol in Hartford, which is a distance of some 60 miles. But a lot of it was done just by people who were determined to do the right thing, whether or not anybody was watching, whether or not it had any immediate effect. And there's great power in that invisible commitment to integrity to eventually make change. It caused the government to respond. Initially, there was a response by the younger Joe Gannam. I'm not even sure if he was mayor then or just was starting. And he joined in those marches. And then there was a response at both the city and state level to acquire this property from the private entity that had polluted it and had dumped on it. And that was the beginning of the public sector's response to the community's persistence with respect to that site. If there ever is a ground zero historically determined with respect to the Connecticut environmental justice movement, it's this site and those people Wow, I am very happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about what you term this ground zero of the environmental justice movement in Connecticut. And Debbie, especially to you who have been so involved from the beginning, what did inspire you to get involved with this environmental justice work in general and particularly in the effort to transform Mount Trashmore to Mount Growmore? So we really did not understand environmental justice networks and all the resources that were available to us. I would say it's not until we met the Elevate team. The reason why we got involved with that particular site, when we were looking for somewhere to grow vegetables, to expand what we currently do at the market, we have this vision. We want to grow healthy people. We want to grow healthy food. We wanted a space in our neighborhood that had significant relationship to everyone involved. So when we were looking around, we looked at the Mount Trashmore site and we was like, oh, Mount Trashmore, you know, we are not the first people who've tried to do something on the Mount Trashmore site. And I will say that, but we decided that is for us one of the most significant sites in our neighborhood because of the weekly marching, because of all the people who are involved in it, because the promise of hope that it presents. It's hard for people to believe in change. And the fact that they were able to get the piles of trash down and it's going to probably be most beautiful sites in the community, we saw it at its worst. 
And now we're going to see it as the best possible use that it can be. And I think that's a lot what civic justice training is about. It gave us not only power, it gave us information, and then it helped us produce a plan to move forward in the direction of what we needed to get done to get the things we needed to do over there. You really teed me up well here because I was going to turn to Susie next to talk a little bit more about what's being done at the Yale Elevate Policy Lab. And it's great to hear that that partnership has bared such fruit for you. So, Susie, from your perspective, what have been the contributions to this project from your lab? And I know Elevate advances a family mental health with triple bottom line justice approach. What exactly does that mean and how does it play out in this particular context? Thank you, Georgia. And thank you, Debbie, for laying the foundation. I've been blessed to work with Debbie as a community champion for the past three years through the Elevate Policy Lab. And I've also been blessed to work with other community champions for three decades who've been bearing the burden of not just pollution, but of poverty, but of disease and of violence. And what we have learned from the communities who've been impacted by these burdens and who are the lived experienced experts is the need to advance not just environmental justice, but health, environmental, and economic justice, which we call triple bottom line justice. But I've also learned from the communities, and especially from Debbie, is the need to address basic needs and safety for the families. And thinking of families as children and the caregivers, the mothers, the fathers, the aunts, uncles, grandparents, we've got to consider the whole health, which is undivided by mental and physical health. And that's what we call family mental health. And so I came to Yale in 2020 to the Elevate Policy Lab and Child Study Center to really start working to foster the healthy aspects of place and environment so that every family has access to that. I was so blessed to join Debbie to work with the East End NRZ to build on this history of successes and challenges in Bridgeport and around the country and similar communities. We together have taken what has been successful in other communities and really taken it in a transformative way to entirely new levels. As Debbie was describing, we launched our Brownfields to Healthfield approach, our B2H approach, which is that community-driven diagnosis and solving of the bad and coming forward with a vision of what looks good for a healthy community. And then what is really precedential is that working with Debbie, we've taken what we call civic justice engagement teaching as a fundamental component. And to me, that has become the new secret sauce that we've been applying, which helps us achieve the successes that we're seeing. And that's essentially to provide a rule of law framework so that the people who've been bearing the burden of pollution, disease, poverty, and crime understand the laws and the resources that were created to help the communities, but too often don't get to them. We've been benefiting so much from government at the local, the federal, and the state level. We launched something that we call Breaking Bread, a facilitated dialogue to bring together the essential stakeholders. And ultimately, we are creating a coming to the table for multiple organizations and institutions to help create vibrant communities. That's really cool to understand better that your policy lab has been doing this for a long time, but we're talking specifically about Connecticut close to home for Yale, and you've been able to expand it in this really meaningful way. 
And now, Bill, I think would be a good time to turn to you to ask how the local government has supported the efforts at Mount Grow More and how it's benefiting the well-being and economic development of the community more broadly. We're very fortunate, extremely fortunate to have the partners that we have. This is a community-led revitalization. The local government is here to be technically supportive, to provide resources to help with execution. But it has genuinely been the case, the vision of Mount Gromart, that that's a community vision. And Debbie has personified that vision. Debbie has humanized it. And she has continued to speak it into existence because of the genuineness of it, the utter appropriateness of it, and the sincerity and the unapologetic persistence with which she has pursued it. She's been able to draw resources to this project. It is remarkable here in the city of Bridgeport for us to have the federal government, EPA, not involved in a distant way, but intimately involved down here regularly. They have beaten down a worn path between Boston and Bridgeport to really roll up their sleeves and be here. Similarly, to have Yale, an international university, come down to the East End and spend the time they have, make the relationships that they have. All of that stems, in my view, from the genuineness of the community-led effort here. I think from the local government point of view, we have come to recognize that change happens only at the pace with which trust happens. And I think the government locally has had to make itself more accessible, more accountable to earn a trust that certainly was broken historically, even if it was only a tacit allowance of the abusive land use that had occurred at the Mount Trashmore site. There was a need to show up and be accountable, take your lumps, realize what you hadn't done right and change. You then move from there into the technical aspects of the work. And here we've been able to take advantage of the resources from the EPA to help clean up the site, to raise up the site so that it's less flood prone, and now it's positioned where it's ready for the vision that Debbie has been speaking into existence for some time now to actually manifest in the physical and community sense. We also will continue to work on the sites around it. And it won't take 30 years because we have the template, we have the partnership, and we have the proof of concept. And I think we do have a greater sense of trust and feel as though we have a mutual accountability, community and local government that we can't stop here. And we have to keep working. Thank you for giving us that visual of the well-worn path between Boston and Bridgeport. I really like that idea. And David, if you can expand on what your team at EPA has done to support this project, I know there's been a lot of work through your agency. There sure has been a lot of work. First of all, I just wanted to thank you for you and your team telling this story because we're at this moment of confusion and discouragement about climate change and its impacts, about whether we can turn environmental injustices into environmental justice. And here is a shining example of the advocacy of Debbie and her community and the empowerment of that community, working with partners across all levels to create this wonderful outcome. This really is about the community at the ground level that's driving this kind of change. And EPA is in the background supporting in as many ways as we can, but it's essentially the communities that are making the change. So EPA has a Brownfields program. It's been around for many decades. 
the term brownfields means a polluted site, not as bad as a Superfund site, so it's not horrendous, but a site that's polluted, we invest as the first mover to analyze, assess the pollution, pay for the cleanup, and work with communities to reuse those kind of properties. The whole focus being our staff is really well-trained at listening to communities, trying to identify how we, in partnership with municipal government, with universities, can help assist. This funding that we invest at the beginning then multiplies itself many, many times. In fact, in aggregate in Connecticut over the last 20 or 30 years, the EPA Brownfields program invested about $100 million, and that turned into leveraging another $1.2 billion from the state from municipalities, from the private sector, from philanthropy. So that's a return on investment of one to 12. Who would not want to invest in that? And what we see when we work hand in hand with our communities is what I like to call a win, 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 win. It's rare that environmental policy can get so many wins without trade-offs. We clean up a polluted site. We provide a parcel for redevelopment, create new spaces for residential use, for commercial use, community use. We remove a public safety hazard. We empower the community. We leverage, as I mentioned, federal funding that catalyzes state and local and private sector and philanthropy investment. We provide opportunities for other important community goals. In this case, public health, nutrition, jobs, urban farming, education, and we create local jobs and expand the local tax base. And, you know, I once went through this whole list of wins at a Brownfield conference in Massachusetts, and the mayor of Lawrence, Daniel Rivera, stood up and he said, well, that's all very good, regional administrator. Thanks for all those wins. But this is the real win. The real win is when a kid grows up walking next to one of these polluted areas, and there's, let's say, a fence up and caution tape and that kid is thinking, what are adults doing in my community that I have to walk by this blight every single day? And the real win is that once we've had the success that Debbie has been leading, that so many partners have been investing in, that kid can walk by and say, ah, this is my Mount Gromore. How are we doing this? How have you had the success, maybe getting into a little bit of the logistics of how Mount Gromore really has leveraged historic and current federal government commitment to environmental justice and health to perform this remediation? At least from the EPA side, over the years, we've fine-tuned the way that we hold community workshops. We hold them regularly. We listen. That's so critically important. We don't have the answers. You know, we're staff from a federal agency, we know that we can be blinded by the focus in Boston or focus in Washington. So we have to get out into the community. We've committed to finishing the assessment of the site itself. So supporting the engineering work, the monitoring and scientific assessment of the site itself and surrounding site. We need to understand the hydrology. We help scope the technical assistance requests and work with the community to figure out how can we support final goals, whether it's infrastructure or programming. It's all about listening and trying to set up transparency and systems that that constant communication can happen. Thank you, David. 
for describing the vital role that EPA has played in this effort of Mount Gromor. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, which has worked in partnership with EPA. We are in a period of historic and unprecedented support for environmental justice, for climate protection, and for health equity. The challenge has always been to make sure that all those resources and all those authorities are going to be accessible to the communities that need them most. Mount Gromor offers an unprecedented proof of concept because we are overcoming the challenge of how do we get this funding and this capacity into the communities. The methodology is becoming more and more clear. It begins with crosswalking the expressed needs of the community and their vision with those relevant authorities and those funding sources. It's about fostering the engagement between the community residents, the government at the local, state, and federal levels, business, philanthropy, academia, all together working for the goal of supporting the community's vision and the community's leadership so that together we can transact the business of environmental remediation and community revitalization, health and well-being. This Mount Gromor story is such a national model, both in terms of the results that we're seeing, but also how we're getting to those results. As others have hinted at in their answer, I definitely want to hear, Debbie, your perspective on this. How did meaningful community engagement and participation prove critical in this work? And how should governments and other agencies be working with communities to solve local issues more generally? So our community sometimes can be tough. And there's a lot of distrust just around the whole government structure when we first took on the task of saying that we were going to build Mount Gromor, people were like, oh, you'll never get that done. After hearing that so many times, what made us so different is the partners that we were able to bring to the table. So we have our NRZ. We've all become a family, understand what the needs and stuff are, the community, and we continuously fight to try to make change in our community. But with our partnerships, I have to say I love EPA because this is really our first time working hand in hand with them. And when you hear EPA, especially in my community, you're like, oh, EPA is not going to have anything to do with the urban center, especially with people like us. But they were welcoming. They worked with us to understand the language around the products around Mount Gromore. They helped us produce cheat sheets. So I laugh now when people come into our NRZ meeting and they have all these environmental issues and they're trying to get our NRZ to vote on it. They don't think we understand, but we EPA experts in my book because we've been taught. They spent time with us. They taught us the language. We know what to look for. And, and that's important. That's important for a community group to really have that kind of power. Now, when these developers and stuff show up at our neighborhood meetings, they come with attorneys, they come with landscape architects, they come with everything because they're like, oh, that NRZ over there, they know what they're talking about when it comes to EPA. And even in our work with the city, so we all know the city can be challenging, but I'm going to tell you, first of all, I love Bill Coleman because he has really went out of the way to help us bring this project to life. It has not been easy. You know, every day going out my door, somebody, when are you going to start understanding what does that mean when you say that you're getting close, closer than we were last week, explaining that to the community. We now have 20 some other people who are all speaking the same language. The government 
really sat and they listened. So many times people come to our NRZs and nothing ever moves and nothing ever gets done and we're no better off than we started. But this has been a remarkable experience of putting everybody in the room and everybody trying to figure it out. Debbie, I got to tell you, you're just warming my heart when you talk about EPA that way. One of the reasons that warms my heart so much is EPA has had a lot of actions that caused mistrust in communities. I mean, who do you think permitted fossil fuel plants and manufacturing facilities and, you know, landfills like Mount Trashmore, EPA and our state partners? And so, We have a lot of catching up to do. That's at the heart of the Biden-Harris administration is bringing environmental justice to places where there's been environmental injustice. Debbie, I really appreciate you saying that. And I know our staff, they're going to be jumping up and down when they hear you because they are so devoted and so dedicated to doing this kind of work. David, you know, I feel like I can say this because you said it first, but EPA and local governments haven't always been the face of such success when it comes to navigating that environmental management alongside communities. How has that changed? How have these collaborative efforts with other agencies, academic institutions, communities put you on the right path? So one of the first steps was the Brownfield program itself. It's part of the requirement of that program to engage with communities. We won't be successful if we're not. But I do also think that President Biden and Vice President Harris have put environmental justice so at the center of our environment, our climate change, our energy policies and implementation that we've really got to buckle down and figure out how to get this right. And of course, there are places and Region 1 EPA is one of those where Staff has been doing this for a long time. They have figured out how to make this happen. And now we have even more resources through the bipartisan infrastructure law to really give tailwind to communities and their leadership. Bill, what about on the local scale? Well, I'd want to comment just in a complimentary way to the statements that Debbie and David shared relevant to the role of the EPA. I think presence has had a lot to do with the transformation that we've seen and benefited from with regard to the EPA's involvement on this project and more generally, you have to go there to know there. And as I pointed out, they've come down here. You get to a point where you not only know the technical facts of the sites, but you get to know each other. And you can't discount the importance of the relational aspect of this work. It it may sound trite, but just that human commitment. I think all of this happens to bring it back full circle because of the purpose. You can talk a a lot about how it gets done. And part of my responsibility in government is to know how to get it done. But the how is a little less important than the why and the who that's involved. I appreciate taking that broader perspective towards the human component. I've been angling us towards this a little bit when talking about local governance and environmental assistance. Here at ELI, we do actually work closely with the Local Government Environmental Assistance Network, or LGN, which was a big entity in helping this podcast come together in the first place. This network helps local governments understand and comply with federal requirements. And Susie, I'm actually going to turn it over to you because I think you know more about the interplay between ELI and Elgin than I do. You've been involved with both for a long time. Can you give our listeners a little more background? 
Thank you, Georgia. As we've been talking about the concept of caregivers, of families, of environmental health and economic justice, I like to think of the Environmental Law Institute as a caregiver for environmental law. ELI was actually founded by the congressional authors of our modern environmental laws. And I recall early in my career when I was a board member of ELI, actually talking with Senator Muskie, who wrote the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that are applying in the east end of Bridgeport. And I think it's really important for us to look at the full scope of the processes which are part of the success of Mount Gromor. With the Environmental Law Institute, we had a program called Environmental Law Alternative Dispute Resolution, where we work with communities around the country and with government and with the regulated industries and even some of the polluting facilities to see how we could come together looking at the law as a baseline, looking at the law as a common understanding of terms and ideas to come up with problem solving. So our CJET really does harness important work by the Environmental Law Institute. Also with Brownfields to Health Fields, ELI did work in this arena, taking some of the successes that we had in EPA Region 4 and supporting it with new materials and new scaling sites. In fact, with the Environmental Law Institute, we launched B2H in New Bedford, Massachusetts, back in the early 2000s. And now Debbie and the community leaders from New Bedford are expanding our understanding of promising practices and lessons learned. I serve on the board of Elgin and have been championing the lessons learned from the east end of Bridgeport with that process. It is part of a national conversation. As Debbie and I have said from the very beginning, it's one big growing family. The Environmental Institute has been a fundamental part of that family in Bridgeport, virtually and now in practice too. So let's talk about those lessons learned. How can other communities replicate similar projects to Mount Gromore and what recommendations do you all have to offer them? So we talk about this often because it's great that we're able to do what we done, but it's better if we're able to share what we've been done. So we've gotten a lot of calls from a lot of people because they want help. Everybody has a vision. Everybody has ideas for their neighborhood and we are always willing to help. But when I think about community, I always tell them just to never give up. I'm going to tell you the Mount Gromore struggle has been real. We're navigating nuances that we've never experienced before. But it's like, and as cliche as it might sound, at the end of the rainbow, we've been able to move mountains. We've been able to do things that we didn't even think that we were going to be able to get accomplished. For other communities, I think they just have to believe in that too. So if it's something that you believe in, if you reach out and get the right partners around you who can encourage and support you and what you need to get done, There's nothing that you won't be able to do. We talk about this all the time is how can we take what we're experiencing, the good, the bad, the challenging, and turn that into some lessons learned for other communities. Debbie's been featured at national conferences and she's coming to the National Brownfields Conference in Detroit later this summer. But it really is important for us to come up with that secret sauce. And in thinking about this, we can tick a couple of things off. As everyone has said, we have to earn the trust and the respect from the communities by addressing their concerns, not concerns that other people from outside the community think are important. 
I think one thing that is so profound to me is that commitment to bi-directional learning. I've learned so much from Debbie and the East End NRC by hearing what their challenges are, but also their diagnosis of the challenges and their proposals for solving those. We had a conversation at one of the NRZ meetings where we were talking about noise pollution. Most people think, well, noise pollution, we're talking about the traffic because the interstate does intersect and go very near the East End. But the community's version of noise pollution was the gunshots that they hear. That is so profound in terms of understanding what the real sources of mental distress are. We've talked about the importance of understanding the laws and the rules and things like that. What's been very important is cultivating that process to maintain relationships across the the stakeholders of community, government, business, academia. We've implemented something called Breaking Bread for B2H and Beyond, where we meet weekly to do a check-in to see what are the needs, what are the challenges, what can the partners bring to that table. And then again, as Debbie said, committing from the beginning on thinking about how we can systemize and scale what we're doing so that we can start expanding these successes to other communities. There's a lot of lessons. I've listed a whole bunch of those, which are decades in the making in terms of listening better, trying to figure out where our resources can best match communities. But I think your question was more about what are kind of lessons learned for the community. So I'm going to throw a couple of things out there and then See if Debbie, Susie, and Bill think they make sense. One is start with partnerships. You know, it's always more powerful to come to EPA for brownfield funding when you're partnering with either multiple groups across a municipality, with the city itself, with the state, with a group like Yale. One is trying to develop clear asks and needs that you can present. So we have a really good idea of what the funding is going to go for, what the vision, what the hopes are, all of those kinds of things. And another sort of related to that is being clear and honest with what capacity there is in the community to manage funding, to participate in the process, and use that information in the requests about what resources that you'll choose to pursue, whether it's technical assistance or other kinds of funding. Here's the last one. As a public servant, someone who's been in government for over a decade, is persistence and holding us accountable. Push, push, push. If there are decisions that we're making that seem inconsistent with our own rules or with common sense, push. That kind of advocacy and persistence is really important to keep your government who's supposed to be serving you to keep us honest, to keep us in line, especially in these kinds of cases, bring justice to communities that have been denied justice, that are overburdened and underserved. I think it's important from a municipal government perspective to realize that one of the most important investments you can make is in community capacity. And Debbie emphasized that in the journey that the East End NRZ as a community group has taken to be at a point now where they've learned so much. You learn by what you put into the effort. And Debbie hasn't been passive in her engagement with the partners. She's been active and she's made a great investment in educating herself on behalf of the community. And that has all kinds of benefits that are rippling outward, not just in the Mount Gromore project, but more broadly. A lot of the cities that face some of the challenges that we face here are strapped financially and resource challenged themselves. So to the extent that we can invest in community capacities and communities themselves can grow stronger and smarter, more capable, more connected, 
it's actually turns into, into good government. Coming back to the human element of this, to be successful in this kind of work, which is not conventional, you're not building an apartment building, you're not building a supermarket, the numbers aren't known, you're creating something that's much more nuanced, much more woven out of the whole cloth and focused on really trying to create community fabric, which is a phrase we use. One of the keys is just being willing to be present, to become friends, to break red with each other, get to know each other better. And then you can get to that place where you can become a little more humble with each other and a little more open. And then you can really make some uh, transformative things happen. That's what's happening here in Bridgeport. Debbie has really stood in the breach. She's shared in some of her comments today how often she is asked by people in the community, when's it going to happen? Debbie has become not an apologist, but an educated developer who's able to explain to people, not in a just a conversational way, but with a high level of fluency, what needs to happen. Debbie has borne the brunt of those questions and really just been a bridge connecting between and among the various institutional presences that you have represented here. And that's no small feat. So the other lesson you, I would take away, and I'll leave it with this, is you need a Debbie. And that's not easy to find. But when you find it, you better be smart enough to recognize it. You need a Debbie. It's a great takeaway. It's something I'm feeling. I feel like I need a Debbie on every podcast episode as well. So I really appreciate you all talking to me today. And I want to end on a final moment for the tangible changes you've seen from this Mount Gromore restoration. What's happening there now? In terms of the changes, the fundamental unprecedented changes that we've seen, the take-home message is that Debbie is a community environmental justice developer. So much of the Brownfields work has been about bringing on the community into somebody else's vision, to somebody else's design. But what Debbie has done is really inverted the triangle and has basically said there are government resources, there's government authorities. We're going to apply those to address the community's needs and their vision. And I think that's a very important takeaway distinction. And that's a change that is very clear coming out of the Mount Gilmore success story. The other point that I wanted to bring up, and we've only touched on it just a little bit, is the important strides we've made in the area of family mental health, because that is a fundamental component of Mount Gromore. When Debbie first came to us at the Yale Policy Lab, we were talking about the crucial importance of addressing the food desert and all of the work that the East End Market had done with respect to the food desert. But as we talked, we realized that there were serious additional concerns, especially under the mental health umbrella. And it started out three years ago with a real challenge of overcoming the stigma of even discussing mental health. Debbie helped us understand how we need to go about navigating that issue through the Mount Gromore process with Debbie's leadership and connecting us with others in the community. We've been able to understand what are the needs from intergenerational trauma to maternal stress, and we've been able to come up with an approach that recognizes mental health as a pathway to disrupt poverty and to advance environmental resiliency and sustainability. We've come to see brownfield sites, not just for the challenge they pose by having pollution, but also as blighted properties as the location and the venue for the drug deals or for the gang violence. And so we've been able to add this piece into the conversation on brownfields to health field 
and find a way to, again, not just deal with the place, but deal with the people, as Debbie always said, growing healthy people at Mount Gromor. Mount Gromor really is that magnet for hope. I would add to that in terms of the tangible changes. I'll just speak to the physical. What you've seen is a site that used to be literally a towering pile of trash, which attracted rats and vermin and seagulls, is now a tidied up, cleaned up site that does not have contaminants in the soil anymore, has been raised up some four feet because it's near the water so that it won't flood. It has a bit of masonry block, ornamental block that rings the site. It has an ornamental fence. It was planted with wildflowers, which I think may be somewhat overgrown now, but rather than attracting vermin and seagulls, now attract some butterflies and some birds. So it's a much more bucolic scene and it's a healthier place for the final touches, which will happen with the actual development of the Mount Gromore campus, the development of the hydroponic gardening center and the community wellness center, the the introduction of the actual buildings onto the site. It's the site that you see there now at Mount Gromore is ready for that. But you also see around the Mount Gromore site, a number of other fallow brownfields, which have been partially assessed in part with help from the EPA. And you now have to move from the tangible to the intangible, the expectation that these sites too will similarly be cleaned up and raised up and joined to create a really nice setting along Johnson's Creek. Yeah, and I'll just go back to the one win that I spoke about where community members now can go by this site and it's in the midst of transformation in a really positive way. That's a huge change in a community that's taken a blight, something really negative and turned it physically and now from a community education, health, mental health perspective, turning it into something positive. I want to agree with Bill when I think about what's next. The Mount Gromore site has created for our community, I want to say hope. We are a community that's often beaten down. We don't feel like we've ever had any impact and that we can ever do anything. But since we've embarked on the Mount Gromore site, now they want to fix Johnson's Creek and now they want to fix the property next to that. And I'm like, oh, let's finish this one. And then we'll go to the next one. So we've reinvigorated our community. Mount Gromore is a fascinating story. One of my favorite plays on Broadway is why we tell the story. And the story of Mount Gromore, even though many chapters have been written, it still has many more chapters to go because it's really about a community coming together mentoring, empowering each other, sticking it out through the hard times. We we had a lot of hard times, but bringing in real partners. We had a thousand people come to the table and they'll say, oh, we're going to help you do this and we're going to help you do that. And then none of that has ever happened for us until now, until this amazing team that's been assembled to help us build out the campus and really be able to complete the story about the Mount Gromore process. Well, Debbie, thank you for being the star of this episode, the star of the project, it seems, and giving us our final word. And thank you to all of you for being here today. Mount Gromore truly is a testament to the impact that community engagement and the whole of society collaboration can have on people, places, and the planet. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org.
And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.